Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, "Mm, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going and indicated that He would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished away from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he walked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road And how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. In Luke's gospel, there are four post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. The first appearance takes place when the women carrying the spices for the anointing of his dead body in verses 1 through 12. In the second appearance, Jesus joins two believers who are profoundly Deeply troubled, discussing the events surrounding 
The death of Jesus in verses 13 through 16. The reunion turns into a a request when Jesus asks, why are they so sad in verse 17? And their reply forms the basis of the events of the passage. The crucifixion of Jesus has dashed their hopes that Jesus might be the Messiah in verses 18 through 21. The disciples are, however, puzzled by this report that some of the women found the tomb of Jesus empty. How could that possibly be? And this leads to a rebuke by Jesus as he confronts their ignorance of the scriptures in verse 25. How could they have so easily forgotten the prophecies that pointed to a death as well as a resurrection. And that leads to perhaps the most amazing Bible study that has ever been given in verses 26 through 27. And then with that came the recognition of Jesus in verses 28 through 35. Excited and overwhelmed, the disciples rush back to Jerusalem. They report the sighting to the dejected disciples in Jerusalem. And instead of welcoming the good news, the two travelers are met at first with fear and unbelief. And of course, then Jesus shows up again. You know, it was over 45 years ago. On April 6, 1966, that Time magazine featured its first, its first all-print cover on a black field with red letters. There was those three words: "Is God dead?" The same magazine, just a few years later, on April 26, 1969, ran another cover. Again, in bold letters, Is God coming back to life? In those very short years between 1966 and 1969, there was a generation of critics and skeptics and naysayers. And they are in every age. You'll find them on every channel. Every generation has harsh critics and skeptics. People who doubt the Bible, who dismiss the resurrection of Jesus. You know, in 1930, there was a very famous Bolshevik and atheist named Bukharin. And he made the journey from Moscow to a place that's in the news right at this very moment, Kiev in the Ukraine. His mission was to address a large gathering of people and his subject was atheism. And for a solid hour, he hammered the huge crowd bringing out the heavy artillery of objections against Christianity and against Christ. He hurled insult after insult and ridicule after ridicule. And at last he was finished and he looked out at the crowd, quite convinced that he had destroyed their faith. And he said, Comrades, are there any questions? And one little old man made his way 
from the crowd and he got up on the platform and he stood next to Bukharin. First he looked left and then he looked right. And at last in the Russian language he gave the orthodox greeting. Christ is risen! And everyone said... Exactly, that's exactly what happened. Everybody in the crowd, like a volcanic explosion of hope. They couldn't dislodge something that was so deeply entrenched. Because people need hope. All these questions have the same answer. See if you can guess. What gives a widow courage as she stands before a fresh grave? What's the ultimate hope of the cripple or the amputee or the burn victim? How can the parents of a brain damaged or physically handicapped child keep from living their whole life in total despair? What and why would anyone who is blind or paralyzed or sick or terminally ill be encouraged when they think about life beyond the grave? What provides hope for the parents and loved ones who watch their dead lowered into the grave? What provides hope for anyone as they bury their parents or their friends? Where do the thoughts of a young couple go? When they finally recover from the grief and anguish of losing a child? What of the tragic news of the mother or father who hear that their son was murdered or their parents have died in a a plane crash or that they've, they've died of an overdose of drugs? Even today, right at this very moment, on April 20th, 2014, they are dredging part of the Korean Ocean and they're bringing home They're dead. Flight 370 has yet to be found. There are people everywhere, all over this planet, who are thinking about death and they're thinking about life. What's the final answer to pain and mourning and senility and insanity and terminal disease and sudden calamity? Have you guessed? Have you figured it out? It has to be the hope of a resurrection. You know, much of my young life, in between those two covers of 1966 and 1969, was spent in the Mojave Desert. We lived in a place called Hesperia. That's the Greek word for the cattle are all dead. (laughs) In the middle of the Mojave Desert, it is... Rocks, dirt, Joshua trees. Not far from where I grew up is a place called Death Valley. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's about 200 miles northeast of Los Angeles. It's a baked out gorge that drops 276 feet below sea level. It's the hottest and lowest place in North America. It's been known to reach temperatures of 134 degrees. Streams come into Death Valley and then they disappear. 
The barren wasteland gets barely two and a half inches of rainfall per year. But something happened between 1966 and 1969. Something happened. For 19 days it rained on that bone dry surface of the desert. And suddenly seeds that had lain dormant for years burst into life. The valley of death became the wondrous valley of life. And that, that, that is the story of the resurrection of Jesus. A desert becomes a garden. Life outwits death. Love outlasts hatred. Hope outlasts despair. And the haunting outline of a cruel cross suddenly disappears into the warm glow of Sunday morning. How is it with your soul this morning? Does it feel like a hot, burning desert? Has it been a while since hope has rained down into your heart and into your life? You see, whether it is a time of emptiness or fullness... Jesus knows the truth. He knows the truth about your heart. And on Easter Sunday, Jesus doesn't go to church with his family and his friends. He heads out on a long hike with two unsuspecting disciples. He has a Bible study with them. Maybe the most amazing Bible study. He's on a hunt, but it's for hearts. Sad hearts, confused Hearts and broken hearts. And what's stranger still is that Jesus goes in disguise. Incognito. The friends of Jesus were upset over his recent death. And the thought of suffering and death in their minds disqualified Jesus as a candidate for Savior and Messiah. But many of you should ask the question, why? Why in the world does he go in disguise? Why does he go incognito? And the truth is because Jesus wants to prove from the scriptures that he's alive. He shows up on a desert road just west of town and he shows up for the most amazing reason to provide hope for two souls whose dreams and hopes were shattered. And he shows up with the most amazing promises. He confirms that the Bible is the word of God. And that the Bible was right all along. And that the promises in the Bible could be trusted. Earlier the women came to the tomb and their hearts were broken and perplexed in verse 4. Mary and the others came to anoint a body that was not supposed to be there in verse 10. And for those who are perplexed, Jesus opens the tomb. And for those who are discouraged, he'll open their eyes. And for troubled hearts... He'll open their minds for all the women at the beginning of the chapter and the disciples in the middle of the chapter and the apostles at the end of the chapter. He's going to show up. 
Look what it says again in verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. In the original language, it says stadia. It's literally 60 stadia. And again, depending on which measure you're using, if you're using attic measurements, it's 176 meters. If you're using Italian measurement, it's 185 meters, but it it comes to about seven miles. And perhaps the two disciples live there because, again, a little later in verse 29, they ask Jesus to stay with them. They may or may not have had relatives there. We don't know. One thing we do know Emmaus is the wrong direction. The greatest event in human history has taken place in Jerusalem. The testimony of the angel was in Jerusalem. The empty tomb is in Jerusalem. Fellowship is in Jerusalem. Before the day is up, they're going to walk back to Jerusalem. And you see, the same is true even today. For some of you, you will come to church and you'll leave church. But which way is the direction of hope? Which way is the direction of friendship? Which way is the direction of fellowship? And in verse 14 it says, And they talked together of all these things which had happened. They talked and discussed about the events and then Jesus shows up. Do you ever consider the fact that when Jesus shows up, the whole world is a different place? Do you also realize that when you gather in his name, when you come together, when you pray with your husbands and wives and your children, when you gather in friendship and fellowship with one another, you experience the friendship and fellowship of Jesus And you may have come to church at the urging of a friend or a relative, but you never, ever really anticipated that Jesus might just show up. In verse 15, it says, So it was while they conversed, and they reasoned, for Jesus himself drew near and went with them. When you least expect it, he shows up. This is an act of divine intervention. And again, Jesus can withhold his identity when it suits his purpose. And it wouldn't have been unusual. Remember, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're headed for Emmaus. And it wouldn't have been unusual in those days for Jewish travelers to join with one another, to keep one another company, to encourage one another and support one another. And they're headed away from Jerusalem during the Passover. And in verse 17, it says, And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are Sad. Weist translates this verse. What are these words which you're tossing to and fro to one another in such animated, heated conversation as you're walking? And they came to a standstill with gloomy countenances, unquote. In the modern vernacular, it would say, Dudes, why are you so bummed out? 
And Cleopas answers in verse 18. Are you from Arkansas? (laughs) Did you just fall off the potato truck? Where are you from? How could you not know what's going on? Imagine someone comes here to Littleton. And you tell them you live in the Columbine Valley. And they say, what happened at Columbine? Even though it was 15 years ago, for many of us, it is as fresh as yesterday on this April 20th. Imagine you go to New York and you say to someone, well, tell me why September 11th is such an important date here. How could you not know? The events in Jerusalem were public knowledge. Literally tens and then tens of thousands of people had crammed into Jerusalem. They had gathered from all over. They were aware of the stories of the life of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the amazing stories about Jesus. How he opened deaf ears and blind eyes. How he healed the sick and he raised the dead even. Jesus may have been a country preacher from a small town in the Galilee, but word was out and his execution was public and soon the whole country would know what happened in this Roman world and the same is true today. People will cram into churches from all around the world. Tens of thousands of people Hundreds of thousands of people. But you know what will make the news today? The 30,000 people who, get, who gathered in downtown Denver to smoke marijuana. To celebrate the fact that now they can legally smoke. That's what's going to be in the news. I wonder if any of them went from sunrise service To go fire themselves up. (laughs) And I wonder if any one of them, refugees from the 60s like me, might fire up one of those legal joints and go, I wonder if Jesus really rose from the dead. It's really interesting how reflective you become when you're relaxed. (laughs) If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why go to church? If the resurrection is a hoax, if it's a fantasy, if it's the product of wishful thinking or vivid imaginations... Why even go? Was the resurrection a physical event or a historical event? Or was it, as some claim, a spiritual event, some sort of divine metaphor? Did Jesus really rise in the same body in which he died in? Or was it a different body? Do the answers really matter? And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. 
In verse 19, it says, and he said to them, (laughs) what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. The answer of Jesus borders on the comical. These disciples have placed their hopes in Jesus and their dreams on Jesus and their confidence is in Jesus. But now their hopes are shattered and their dreams are dissolved. What do you do? What do you do when you stake your whole life on another person? And that person leaves. Or that person stays and proves to be a disappointment. What do you do when life's expectations don't turn out the way that you planned? People are afraid to dream. They're afraid to desire. They're afraid that the disappointment might overwhelm them and overtake them. They're afraid to believe in anything. Because what if it proves not to be true? These disciples were in part expecting a political Messiah. They wanted a physical, political, social, cultural liberation that would free them from Roman bondage and Roman oppression and foreign occupation. And they weren't ready to come to grips with the fact that Jesus isn't that kind of guy. He's not the guy who's there to politically and socially and culturally make sure that everything is okay. He is the guy who is going to come to make sure that your sins can be forgiven. So that grace and mercy can be a part of your life. So that redemption and reconciliation to God can take place. Jesus is going to die to liberate from sin. He is going to rise from the dead so that the most pernicious form of slavery can be forever broken in your life. And in verses 20 through 24, it says, And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping, we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. Read that and think about what you're reading. You see, they were in Jerusalem. Imagine, imagine, imagine. You could go back in time. You could go anywhere at any time on one particular day. Where would you go? Wouldn't you go here? Wouldn't this be the place that you go? Set the way back machine for Jerusalem Easter Sunday and you go there and there's an empty tomb and the angels have given a message there is the empty tomb there's the angels message There's the declaration, the testimony of the women. And these two disciples walking away from Jerusalem. Empty tomb, we don't believe it. Angelic message, we don't believe it. Testimony of the women, we don't believe it. 
Why should it shock you and surprise you that when we talk about an empty tomb, people go, yeah, right. When we talk about a supernatural testimony, they go, right. When we say there were eyewitnesses who saw him rise from the dead, they go, these are crazy ladies talking all kinds of nonsense. Clearly, grief has gripped their heart and overwhelmed them. Many people know the circumstances surrounding the death of Jesus. We see Cleopas communicate the facts as he understands them. He calls Jesus a prophet in verse 19. That shouldn't shock us and surprise us either. A lot of people do. You know, Jesus was a good man, quite possibly the best man. Hundreds of millions of Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. When they even say his name, they say, Prophet Jesus, peace be upon his name. Cleopas is either unwilling or unable to call him the Messiah. Other people know the circumstances of his life. They know the the, the testimony surrounding his death. But they don't believe it even for a minute. They'll gather together in churches all around the world as a kind of cultural gathering. And they'll go, yeah, I know Christians all over the world believe that Jesus lived and that he died and that he came back to life. But it's probably not true. They don't really believe it in their hearts. Someone has likened belief in the resurrection to four stages. Number one, fairy tale, myth, unbelievable, that's verse 22. Skeptical but willing to check out the facts, that's verse 23. Like Peter, they go into the empty tomb and they're puzzled but they remain unconvinced. And then number three, they have a personal encounter with Jesus. Jesus actually shows up in verse 31, which results in a change. And as they commit themselves to Jesus, they understand the reality of the gospel and the presence of Jesus. The Life Application Bible has this little note on page 1541, quote, We are likely to miss Jesus and withdraw from the strength found in other believers when we become preoccupied with our dashed hopes and our frustrated plans. A lot of people have shown up at church. And today isn't a day of joy. It isn't a day of celebration. The thing that they're thinking about is the hurt and the pain and the loss and the difficulty and the frustrated plans. They didn't come to church in the hopes that Jesus would change their life forever. These men were unbelieving. If you haven't guessed that by now, you should. Remember, they're walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking away from the empty tomb. They're walking away from the the angelic message. They're walking away from the testimony of the women. They left on that Sunday and they walked 
away. They didn't believe, verse 22. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb, they astonished us, the idea being they told us the most incredible story that you can imagine, that the body is gone. And think about it, think about it, think about it. There's only two reasonable explanations of why that body is gone. Friends took the body. Or foes took the body. Question. If Jesus' enemies stole the body, when they proclaim a resurrection, doesn't it make sense to you that they would have simply produced the body and say, look, these Christians, they're crazy. They said that Jesus rose from the dead, but hey, in a strange hoax, we're the ones who took the body. The disciples took the body. Does that make sense to you? These fearful men running for their lives confront an armed Roman guard who are who are guarding the tomb and they roll away the stone and they, they take the body of Jesus and then they fabricate this story. Does that make sense to you? There's really only one other explanation. My father was fond of saying, no body, no crime. My father loved to watch crime scene investigation. I don't know why, but he loved it. His favorite wasn't the Las Vegas one. It was the the Florida one. And he would turn to me when they would come on. He'd say, hey, Gino, do you know how difficult it is to find DNA in an alligator's intestines? I said, Dad, how, how, how do you know that? Friends took the body. Foes took the body. The men left Jerusalem on Sunday morning. Warren Wearsby writes, quote, Their real problem wasn't in their heads, but in their hearts. They could have discussed the subject for days. What happened? What happened? How do we explain what happened? They could have discussed the subject for days and never arrived at a satisfactory answer. What they needed was a fresh understanding of the word of God. And Jesus will give that understanding to them. He will open the scriptures and they will open their eyes. And they'll realize that Jesus isn't not only alive... But he's right there with them. Look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe. In all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And like so many people today, they didn't accept the scripture. And they didn't understand the scripture. And like the Jews of old, people want and long for economic relief or political relief or psychological relief or physical relief. They want a feel-good Jesus who will make moral statements but will make no personal demands. And as they read the Old Testament, they see the glory of a future kingdom, which will come, by the way. But they don't understand or accept a suffering servant. They fail to realize that you have to wear a crown of thorns before you can wear a crown of gold. You have to submit 
in obedience before you can share the joy. And sometimes our flesh must taste stripes before we can experience real healing. And it's true, it's true, it's true what Jesus said so long ago that first the seed must die if it's going to come back to life. So many false teachers and deceived Christians embrace a gospel of greed because they're greedy. Soren Kierkegaard warned that, quote, the day when Christianity and the world become friends, Christianity is done away with, he said. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote prophetically to a friend from his Berlin cell, we are proceeding towards a time when there will be no religion at all, unquote. The world wants to erase Jesus, forget Jesus, deny Jesus, dilute the word of God. People pick and choose the scriptures like entrees at an all-you-can-eat Hebrew buffet. They'll take a little bit of this and they'll take a little bit about that. But Jesus The Bible is a book about Jesus. Did you know that? Every book in the Bible has something to say about Jesus. And every chapter has something to say about Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all of the scripture the things concerning himself. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. Don't you think it would have been far more impressive for Jesus to go, ta-da! Dudes, it's me! Woo! You recognize me now? See this hole? See this hole? See this hole? He doesn't do that. Jesus begins in Genesis. That's Moses. He continues through the writing of the prophets. That's the rest of the Bible. Jesus gives us an important principle. We might call this the Jesus principle of understanding the Bible. The key to understanding the Bible is that the Bible is a book about Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes the Bible make sense because the Bible is a book about Jesus. Jesus is the theme of the Bible, the subject of the Bible, the object of the Bible. Can you imagine? Did they talk about Isaiah 52 and 53? Did they talk about Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 and Deuteronomy 18? Can you go anywhere in the Bible? Can you begin from anywhere in the Bible and preach Jesus? Genesis, he's the beginning The chosen, the prepared, the powerful Lord. Exodus, he is the Passover, the redeemer of his people and the merciful Lord. Leviticus, he's the object of our worship. He's the one who's set apart. He's the one who's holy. Jesus is the sanctifier of his people. In Numbers, he's the shepherd of his wandering people. He directs them and sustains them. It's Jesus who tests them. And then Jesus who orders them to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy, he's the great one who makes covenants with his people. 
He's the one who instructs the nation. Jesus is the loving Lord and the great reward who says, obey me. In Joshua, Jesus is the promised land that we faithfully occupy. In the book of Judges, Jesus is the one who drives out sin and then provides deliverance for the, for the oppressors and then repentance for the sorrowful and deliverance from idolatry. In Ruth, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he's the prophet and the priest and the judge. In 2 Samuel, he is David's son and the true man who after God's own heart. In, in 1 Kings, he's the true wisdom of God. He's the one who's greater than Solomon. In 2 Kings, he's the faithful covenant to his people. He's Elisha's promise of grace and life and hope. In 1 Chronicles, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one who sits on David's throne. In 2 Chronicles, he's the one who's greater than the temple. In Ezra, he's the promise of the future, the forgiver, the restorer of his people. In Nehemiah, he's the promise of restoration and protection. He is leadership and identification. In Esther, Jesus is the one who puts himself in the place of death. He's the one who wins approval of the great king. He's the one who preserves his people. He's the one who's the advocate. In Job, he's the daysman. He's the one who worships. He is the, the, the one who stands between heaven and earth. He's the one who identifies with our sufferings. He's the one who remains the hope for redemption. In Psalms, he's our song. He's our worship. In the gospel, he is the king and the servant and the son of God and the son of man. In Proverbs, he's wisdom personified. He is the incarnation of perfection. He is perfect wisdom and the knowledge of God. In Ecclesiastes, he's eternity in our hearts. He's the ultimate satisfaction. He is joy. He is abundant life. In the Song of Solomon, he is our faithful husband and we are are his bride. In Isaiah, he is our salvation. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch, the one who reigns, the Lord of righteousness. In Lamentations, he's the prophet who weeps and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have come to you? But you're the one who kills the prophets. You're the one who, is, who stones those who are sent to her. He's the man who's acquainted with sorrows and grief. In Ezekiel, he's the Messiah who's the king. He's the tender twig, the stately cedar, the lofty mountain. And Daniel, he's the great stone who comes from heaven and he crushes the kingdoms of this world. He's the ancient of days who sits on the throne of eternity. And in Hosea, he's undying love and loyal love. In Joel, he's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit and comes and judges the nation. In Amos, he's the one who's given all authority to judge and restore the people. In Obadiah, he's the judge and the savior of Israel and the possessor of the kingdom. In Jonah, he's the son of man in the belly of the sea creature. He's the one who's greater than Jonah. He's the one who dies and comes back to life. In Micah, he's the promise of Bethlehem. And the one who's going forth was from everlasting to everlasting. In Nahum, he's the judge of the nations in his second coming. In Habakkuk, 
Habakkuk, he's the justifier of those who are faithful and the one who fills the world with the knowledge of the, of, of the glory of God. And Zephaniah, he is the great day of the Lord. And Haggai, he's the one who restores the temple and blesses his people. He's the one whose Zerubbabel's ring. And Zechariah, he is God and he is man. He's the righteous branch, the stone with seven eyes, the king who's also the priest. He's the good shepherd. He's the one sold for 30 pieces of silver. He's the pierced one. He's the smitten shepherd. He's the one who's forsaken. He's the coming judge. He's the precious king. And Malachi, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the one who turns the hearts of their fathers back to the children. He is the one who's the object of the message of Elijah. He doesn't just simply teach them doctrine or prophecy. Look what it says in verse 27. The things concerning himself. These men talked and they listened and they laughed. And when Jesus pretended like he was going to go on alone, they invited him to come home with him. They'd been won by the word of God. And they didn't even know who the stranger was. All they knew is that their hearts were burning. And they wanted the blessing to last. You know, that's what happens when you receive the word of God. That's what happens when you fellowship with the people of God. When you study the word of God and you fellowship with the people of God, something happens inside of you. There was an empty tomb. There was an angel's announcement. There was the testimony of the women. But they saw for themselves. Because of a Bible study. And even though he vanished away, He didn't leave. He was still with them. What a difference it makes when Jesus is alive. What a difference it makes. They go and they head back in the direction from which they came. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone today was convinced of the reality of Jesus through a Bible study. Here's a letter written to an advice column along with a response. It says, Dear Eutychus, our preacher said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. Oh, wait, there's another option, huh? Friends took the body. Foes took the body. He came back to life. It was all a hoax. He didn't really die. It was like Jack on 24. He's tortured and tortured. And then all of a sudden he comes back to life. It's signed, sincerely bewildered. Dear bewildered, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails. 39 heavy strokes. 
nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb, wait 36 hours, see what happens. Signed, Eutychus. Friends took him. Foes took him. Or he came back to life. What do you think? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a wonderful time we've spent. Lord, I pray that you would awaken in our heart a profound sense and a a keen desire to go to the place where the Bible is taught, where fellowship takes place. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who are convinced, not just simply because of a, a warm, fuzzy feeling that's inside of our hearts, or because of the compelling testimony of the gospel narrative. But Lord, I pray that Jesus would convince us by everything that's been said, by everything that's been done in every book in the Bible, every chapter in the Bible. Lord, we pray that you would walk with us even as we walk out this door. That our companionship would continue. And that the fellowship would not cease. In Jesus' name. Amen.